This is Ticker Symbol U, a podcast focused on highlighting advanced technologies that are transforming our lives and disrupting their competitors in the process. My name is Alex, and I'm definitely not a financial advisor. I'm just a nerd that loves sharing my personal vision of the future and putting my money where my mouth is. To learn more, find me at tickersymbolu.com or youtube.com slash tickersymboluyou. Let's start with this. Banks are so f***ed. So f***ed. I mean, oh people go, I'm going to short Tesla. I go, why don't you short the bank? How many times do you have to get your face ripped off to realize you're just an idiot? Go short a bank. If we learned anything from 2008, it's that big banks can be too big to fail, or at least too big to go quietly. That clip from Chamath is from the end of October of 2020. And since then, JP Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Bank of America, and Charles Schwab are all up 50 to 100%. So if you took him at his word and shorted big banks after hearing that clip, you probably lost your shirt and then some. But the world is changing and big banks will eventually need to change with it. So in this episode, I'll be comparing two companies that are leading that change. Both Square and PayPal are trading at steep discounts today and could disrupt legacy banks over the long term. That's why ARK Invest holds both of these companies and has been aggressively buying the dip on one of them. But now with interest rates on the rise, are these fintech companies worth investing in? Or will the biggest banks just keep getting bigger? Your time is valuable, so let's get right into it. Big banks with physical branches do have real benefits. You can walk into a bank and talk to somebody for basically any type of normal finance-related need, like banking, borrowing, lending, investing, and financial advisory services. Many people want to talk to a real person who they feel will help them sort out their own personal finances, which is why brick-and-mortar banks are often the financial hubs of the communities they serve. Before the information age, the physical bank branch model made all the sense in the world, so big banks bought up the biggest, nicest buildings in the best parts of town. Another thing that was true in the late 80s and early 90s is that annual returns on savings accounts were north of 8%. 8%. This is why I think a lot of our parents try to teach us the importance of savings accounts. Today, high-yield savings accounts have yields of about half a percent all the way to 1%, still far below inflation. So big banks really did kick ass back in the day, but now, not so much. In a mostly online and post-pandemic world, these big bank branches have turned from assets into liabilities. Rents and leases are high and foot traffic is low, so these buildings give banks a lot less bang for their buck. The average annual cost per active bank branch hit a record high of over half a million dollars a year in 2018, and banks like JP Morgan, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo have many thousands of these bank branches around the world, and tens of thousands more ATMs on top of that. This is serious physical infrastructure that costs money to lease, maintain, power, and so on. Foot traffic at bank branches is down because the in-bank experience is filled with a lot of friction. Driving there, waiting in line, dealing with other people, filling out forms, having to put on pants. Probably not in that order. On top of that, the financial experience at big banks also comes with a lot of friction. Late fees, ATM fees, high interest rates on loans, account minimums to open, and fees if you want to close. And my personal favorite, non-sufficient funds fees. That's where you get charged money for uh, not having enough money. The reasons big banks have to do this are simple. They need to cover the costs of their big buildings, networks of ATM machines, and everything else that used to help them acquire customers in an offline world. 
If we take all of the costs of running these big banks and divide it by the number of customers they're acquiring, we get their customer acquisition costs. According to ARK Invest research, those costs were roughly $925 per customer in 2019. This means a couple of things to us investors. First, it means that for the same size checking account or whichever financial product you want to compare, banks net a much lower amount than digitally native companies. Said another way, banks need people to deposit or borrow much more money than digital wallets to break even. For example, these customer acquisition costs mean that big banks don't break even on a checking account until it's at about $6,500. In 2020, surveys suggested that the median savings account balance in the United States was just $3,500, meaning the average bank would actually lose around $300 on that account over its lifetime. Even if you add another $2,000 to that number, which is the median emergency fund in the United States, a big bank would still lose around $100 on that client's accounts put together. So, Ark Invest's math shows that the average big bank loses money on banking the average American. My sincere hope is that big banks continue to close their worst-performing bank branches and shed these costs over time. After all, those costs are getting passed on to us. Doing that would move this blue line upward to the purple line. This is a totally different story for digital wallets, because their customer acquisition costs are so low due to them not having any networks of bank branches or physical ATM machines and so on. This means two things for digital wallets. First, they make about $700 on the median checking and emergency account total of $5,500. Second, they actually break even on an initial account balance of just $150, meaning they can start serving people who are unbanked or underbanked today. In 2020, the FDIC found that over 6% of households, or 14 million Americans, are unbanked. That's a lot of potential clients for digital wallets that legacy banks simply can't go after. Add to that how quick, streamlined, and personalized these services can become when they're handled by artificial intelligence, and you get a real recipe for disruption of the way big banks are working today. I'm not telling you to go short big banks, but I am telling you that big banks will need to start looking at least a little more like digital wallet companies in the future if they want to stay competitive. This is why I think digital wallet companies are worth talking about right now, even though traditional banking stocks are way up and fintech stocks are way down. So with that context on how digital wallets could disrupt these big banks, let's take a serious look at the big two, Square and PayPal. For the rest of this episode, I'll be using Square and Block interchangeably since some of my sources are from before Square changed its name. ARK Invest published a lot of research comparing Square's Cash App to PayPal's Venmo. In their research, they showed that digital wallets in the US can provide up to an $800 billion market opportunity. They also do some clever research using Google Trends to show the rise in adoption of Cash App versus Venmo, but there's much more to these companies than their digital wallet offerings. Here's an interesting difference in Kathy Wood's trading activity between them. Kathy Wood has been actively buying the dip on Block as its price got cut literally in half over the past three months. Her average buy price over the last month is a little over $150 per share, and Block stock is around 15% lower than her average buy price today. Square, or now Block, is ARK Invest's ninth biggest position overall, with over three quarters of a billion dollars in it across ARK-K, ARK-F, and ARK-W, ARK Invest's fund themed around the next generation of internet applications. On the other hand, PayPal is ARK Invest's 97th biggest position. It's only in ARK-F, and Kathy Wood has been selling out of it. Her average buy price over the last month for PayPal is a little under $190 per share, and it's trading about 10% lower than that right now. 
So even though these are both digitally native fintech companies that could disrupt different areas of legacy banking, comparing them may not be as apples to apples as I thought when I started my research for this episode. This is something I feel investors actually don't talk about enough. So let me make a quick point here. Zoom versus Microsoft is a bad comparison to make because an investor cannot buy team stock. When you buy Microsoft stock, only a very tiny fraction of that stock is represented by Microsoft Teams. Think about all the other things you're investing in when you buy Microsoft stock. Windows, Xbox, Microsoft Office, and Azure. The list goes on and on. Microsoft is a great stock, but if you're looking for a pure play, internet-based communications company, Microsoft stock isn't it. So, while it's fair to compare Zoom to Teams, you can't compare Zoom stock to Microsoft stock. Those businesses do incredibly different things. In my understanding, this is why ARK Invest holds Zoom, but not Microsoft, Roku, but not Amazon, Palantir, but not Google. Watch out for these faulty comparisons, because in all of these cases I just mentioned, you might want to hold both stocks instead of choosing one over the other. Let me show you just how different these two companies are. Square is focused on building two interacting ecosystems, one for sellers and one for individuals as buyers. The seller ecosystem focuses on a few key areas, managing in-person and online payments, providing point-of-sale solutions and business tools, financial services including credit, payroll and loans, and a platform for third parties to develop new tools, integrations, and vertical-specific software for different kinds of businesses. From a technology point of view, there are two things about Square that really stand out to me. First, they're vertically integrated, meaning their hardware, software, services, and data are all built and maintained by them instead of outsourced to outside vendors. That's important because they have tight control over product development and the user experience at every level. The second thing is that they do automated risk assessments using machine learning and maintain high acceptance rates. This is actually really tricky because a small error in these algorithms can result in providing a lot of non-performing loans or lines of credit. I made a few videos about Stonestock, ticker symbol STNE, where we saw just how massive of an impact getting these risk assessments wrong can have on the bottom line of a company. Square being able to automatically approve a high amount of these loans with fair rates while keeping their risks in check is a pretty big deal and requires mountains and mountains of data. Another smart thing that Square did was acquire Afterpay, one of the biggest names in the buy now, pay later space. They announced the $29 billion deal last August, and it's expected to close soon in the first quarter of 2022. So Square is focused on building deep, feature-rich solutions for individuals and micro-merchants, small and medium-sized businesses, and then move upstream to the mid-market. That's who this ecosystem is for, smaller sellers. Let me just mention one thing about Cash App, which is Square's digital wallet and their ecosystem for individual buyers. Remember the $925 customer acquisition costs for big banks that I mentioned earlier? Cash App's customer acquisition costs for Q3 of 2021 was just $5. So while it takes an average big bank well over five years to break even on a typical account, Cash App gets a positive return on their customer acquisition costs within the first year, often much sooner than that. That's a pretty big difference, right? Okay, where Square is more of a business solutions ecosystem, PayPal is more of a payments processor and independent payment gateway. Customers can connect through and pay using PayPal just about anywhere, including internationally, since PayPal can handle currency exchanges. Just like Square did with Afterpay, PayPal acquired Payday, a two-sided payments platform and provider of buy now, pay later solutions in Japan for $2.7 billion or about 10 times less than Square's acquisition of Afterpay. PayPal has lots of integration with other apps, making them a great backup payment method that almost every kind of business can accept. 
larger sellers tend to prefer PayPal because they have lower transaction fees than Square, which makes more of a difference the more transaction volume a business has. Keep that in mind when I show you their financials. PayPal is focusing on payment solutions for the broadest number of users and has a wider global reach than Square. Venmo, PayPal's digital wallet, is more limited than Square's Cash App, but it has features like discovering deals, accessing lines of credit, buying crypto, buy now pay later features, and so on. Venmo is getting integrated with Amazon, which is greatly going to increase their total payments volume through the app in 2022 and beyond. At the same time, Amazon is stopping accepting Visa credit cards issued in the UK this week due to a face-off over transaction fees. Now, Amazon is taking steps like offering UK customers a gift card to switch their payment methods away from Visa and is also reviewing the Amazon Visa credit card here in the USA. These things should clearly have a big impact on Visa's stock, so it is possible for giant legacy finance companies to get disrupted like this over time. This is Visa we're talking about here. Anyway, the trend here is that Square is a deeper ecosystem of offerings for a narrower audience, while PayPal is a suite of payments processing solutions for a global audience. This could be why Square can be found in ArcW and ArcK, while PayPal is only found in ArcF. Let me move on to highlighting their financials and telling you which one I'd buy right now. Square is currently trading at less than half of its all-time high at a price-to-sales ratio of well under 4. Square has a gross payment volume of about $41 billion for quarter 3 of 2021. Square's revenue was about $3.8 billion, which grew about 27% year over year. Their gross profit was about $1.1 billion. That's a gross margin of about 29%. Their operating income was $23 million, million, not billion, giving them an operating margin of 0.6%. Their net income was a loss of $2.9 million, so they were just barely unprofitable for the quarter. This is the kind of company that Kathy Wood really focuses on, since they sacrifice profits today and reinvest all of their cash into good, healthy growth. And we know it's good, healthy growth because their customer acquisition costs are so low. We know they're not spending money on things like marketing and promotions to win new business. They're spending that money on research, development, ramping up new offerings, and acquisitions. The challenge here is that companies with relatively low net earnings are the exact ones that suffer when interest rates rise, which is what we're seeing right now in the market. Now let's talk about PayPal. PayPal is trading at a 45% discount relative to their all-time high, at a price-to-sales ratio of about 8. It seems like Square is a better buy at first, but that's a little misleading. Here's why. For the same quarter, PayPal's total payment volume was $310 billion, almost eight times higher than Square's. Their revenue was about $6.2 billion, which is up about 13% year over year. So Square is growing twice as fast, but keep in mind that they're growing from a much smaller baseline. Of that, about $3.6 billion was gross profit for PayPal, or about 58% in terms of gross margins, which is literally double squares. That's why PayPal should be trading at twice the price-to-sales ratio of square. PayPal also had a billion dollars of operating income, which means their operating margins are almost 17%. They actually had a net income of $1.1 billion after including non-operating revenues like changes in exchange rates, interests, and so on, which translates to a 17.6% profit margin. So PayPal is in a much safer financial situation today in an environment that punishes future risks. 
Tweet me at ticker symbol U with your thoughts on fintech companies versus brick and mortar banks, as well as Square versus PayPal. Do you think Square's customer acquisition costs of just $5 pose a big threat to big banks, which pay over $900 to acquire a similar customer? What do you think about the financial health of PayPal versus Square now that we know interest rates are set to rise throughout the next couple years? I read all my comments and tweets, and I'm excited to hear your thoughts. As for me, here's exactly what I think will happen and how I'm playing it. I've been thinking about this ever since I saw that clip of Chamath. How many times do you have to get your face ripped off to realize you're just an idiot? Go short a bank. So I'm not going to short big banks, but I am going to keep betting on digital wallets. I think that brick and mortar banks are going to keep closing more and more physical branches. And at the same time, I think they're going to keep coming out with more and more fintech offerings like digital wallets, stable coins, payment gateways, and frictionless solutions for peer-to-peer transfers. What I'm saying is that banks are going to have to innovate to stay in the game, which means they're going to have to look a lot more like Square or PayPal than they do today. Kind of like how legacy automakers are going to have to start looking more and more like Tesla if they want to stay relevant over the next decade. Your next question is probably, okay, so Square or PayPal? After all this research, I really think that's the wrong question to ask. I've spent this whole episode explaining just how different these two companies are. Payment solutions versus business solutions. A focus on big companies versus small and medium-sized businesses. High future growth versus today's stability and profitability. So I'm going to be investing in both of them. I don't plan on retiring anytime soon, but the market is favoring financial stability right now. So for every 400 or so dollars I'm going to put into Square, I'm also going to put something like 100 into PayPal to add a little more stability to my investments in fintech. If interest rates rise more than expected, I'll start adding more and more to PayPal. If the Fed cools off and keeps interest rates lower than expected, I'll add more to Square. These companies have a lot of differences that make me happy to hold both of them, and I don't mind double dipping where they overlap, which is on digital wallets and frictionless peer-to-peer transfers. Those are the exact disruptive innovations that I believe will force big banks to change for the better, or die trying. And to me, that's a future worth investing in. So stay long, stay strong, and thanks for watching. Until next time, this is Ticker Symbol U. My name is Alex, reminding you that the best investment you can make is in you.